The passage this morning is from John 4, 1 through 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither of this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You know, the last time I was scheduled to preach, we had a baby girl and a Category 5 hurricane in the same week. Uh, so thanks for dealing with our, you know, giving us grace and mercy. And uh, just a quick story. Um, I, ca- I was supposed to preach in the morning. I called Keith at 4 o'clock and said, Jen's water just broke. Here's Caleb. Here's the sermon. I'll see you next week. And that dude did an awesome job. Uh, but my point there is that life is beautiful and it's tragic. It's filled with babies and marriages and Maple Street Biscuit. But it's also filled with hurricanes and earthquakes and cancer. And sometimes these two things crash directly into each other. Joe just prayed about it. But if you've been watching the news, uh, a shooter opened fire on a concert in Las Vegas. So those people were dressed up, out on dates, out with friends, there to celebrate music. It's one of the beautiful parts of our world. And then just a few hours later, 58 of them are dead. 
See, stories are rolling in about how victims helped other victims get to safety. And stories are rolling in about what went wrong that led to the tragedy. There's times like this that remind us of two things. The first one is our world is worth redeeming. And the second one is our world needs redeeming. But see, the thing about redemption is it means change. It means transformation. Things that need redeemed need their categories challenged. So you would expect that as redemption moves into the world, you would expect it to challenge our categories. In fact, you would expect it to tear down our categories. So as we turn to John 4 this morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at when Jesus comes, when he steps down into human history to redeem his creation, he challenges our categories. So if you have a Bible or a phone, uh, turn with me to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. Katie already read it. It's probably uh, an obvious thing to say this, but John chapter 4 comes right after John chapter 3. All right. What I mean by that is this story that Katie just read about the outcast Samaritan woman at the well comes right on the heels of the story of Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, insider, powerful Jerusalem mover and shaker. So we're, we're, I'm not going to talk directly about that, but I just want you to hold that intention that right on the heels of Jesus being pursued by the Pharisees, who are the elite, we now come to this story of him pursuing a Samaritan woman. So the first thing I want us to look at is uh, who does Jesus pursue and what's his offer to her? So turn with me to verse seven. What you're going to see is it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So right off the bat, there's two things you should know. First century Jews hated Samaritans. They thought they were traitors. So at every single point, they tried to avoid them. And then the second thing you should know is that in the ancient Near East, women didn't talk to men, or men didn't talk to women publicly. But here we find Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, intentionally pursuing a Samaritan woman. But here's the deal. That's not even the scandalous part. You notice back up uh, right before it in verse six, it says it was about the sixth hour. Y'all know what that means? Today, that means uh, at noon or lunchtime. They would start to count the hours by when the sun came up. And then there was 12 hours between the time, the 12 parts between the time the sun came up and the time it went down. So the sixth hour was exactly the middle of the sun at its highest point in the sky. You get that? So here's why that's really, really important is gathering water is super hard work. And it's also a communal activity. Y'all who uh, stayed, we were forced to stay here for Irma. We probably would have thought about getting out, but when you have a new baby girl who's a month early, uh, you can't leave. So we stayed. And so I remember on Thursday morning, this thing's coming at 8 a.m. I go to Costco, they open early, they got stacks of water. I get some cases of water. And when I get home, I pick up those cases and all I have to do is move them from my truck into the garage, right? But I start moving these cases of water and the next thing you know, I am sweating, right? See, move, gathering water, I know that's a really practical example, but gathering water is super hard work. And so what would happen is all the women of a village would gather early in the morning while it was still cool. And then together they would make the trek down to the well and they'd gather the water 
and they'd head back uphill into town. The reason they would do it early in the morning is one, so they'd get a jump on the day, but two, is so they'd avoid the heat, right? But it's noon. The sun is at its highest point in the day, and here we find this woman out gathering water. Why didn't she just get it when all the other women got it? And the answer is super, super simple. She's an outcast. We're going to read more about it later. I won't get into it now, but her shame and her relationship with the other women in the village has driven her into isolation. So what do we find? We find Jesus, this man who is being pursued by the Pharisees in Jerusalem, head out of Judea and intentionally pursue a woman who Samaritan women wouldn't even associate with. See, that's the very first scandal of the gospel. You know, Jesus pursues sinners. He doesn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. And see, the reason that's a scandal is the world will tell you that salvation or success belongs to cleanliness and it belongs to performance. Here's what you do. You go to the right school, you get the right job, you wear the right clothes, then you marry the right guy or you marry the right girl, you have the right number of kids, then you retire at the right age. But what do we find Jesus doing? This woman who has made such a mess out of her life that she's become a triple outcast. We see Jesus leave all the up-and-comers, all the elite, to go pursue her, right? And here's the crazy thing about it. You know the amount of humiliation Jesus was opening himself up to, to do this? Remember when we said that uh, men wouldn't talk to women and Jews wouldn't talk to Samaritans? You certainly wouldn't if she wasn't your wife, and you definitely didn't do it one-on-one. But here we find Jesus not just talking to her, but asking her to drink from the same jar she's using. I'm not going to talk about it later, but you, you get later in the story and the, the disciples come back and they are, the, the, the way to paraphrase it in English is, what in the world is going on, right? These guys who've been walking with Jesus come back and they see him in this intimate engagement with this outcast woman and they're trying to figure it out. And my point here is this, if it means your redemption, Jesus is more than willing to open himself up to humiliation. I'll say that again. If it means your redemption, Jesus will more than gladly humiliate himself. The same exact Jewish rabbi who asked for a drink from the jar of a Samaritan woman, a couple of years later, subjects himself to a criminal's death. And why did he do that? He did it so that he could bear the sin and the reproach that would have destroyed you. So what I want you to know in the beginning, the very first scandal is that Jesus pursues sinners, but he's more than willing to suffer humiliation to win their redemption. How different is that from the world? You need to perform and you need to clean up, but Jesus says, I'll suffer humiliation to clean up for you. And what gets really interesting is uh, from there, notice the offer that Jesus makes to her. You turn to verses 13 and 14, it says, everyone who drinks from, 
Yeah, Katie, this one's tricky. Where's Katie? <laughs> um, everyone, who drinks from the, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus does a couple of things here. He, uh, he acknowledges that the fact that the woman's thirsty, that she's needy. He acknowledges that the things of this world, no matter how good they are, whether it's the tap water of rural Galilee or the wellspring that Jacob himself drank from, it's going to leave you thirsty. Nice things, not nice things, they're all going to fail you, is what Jesus is, is saying here. And it would be so easy for us to talk about all the ways that the things you're pursuing are going to fail you, but that's not the point of this text, at least at the, not at this point. What I want you to catch here is what does Jesus say about thirst? He promises to satisfy it completely. Jesus says that salvation, and I'm going to talk about it in a second, but that Jesus says that salvation belongs not to eliminating your desire, but in finding its ultimate satisfaction. You tracking with me? You know how different that is than the world? I'll give you an example. You want to change your life? Change the way you eat. Think about Whole30, all right? If you want to change your life, stop eating what you want to and start eating what you don't want to. <laughs> or retirement. Live like no one else will now so you can live like no one else can later. Y'all ever heard that? My point's not to beat up on Whole30 or retirement. Both of those are awesome. I think Jen and I might try Whole30 and retirement would probably be nice at some point. But <laughs> my point is this, is the world teaches you that salvation belongs to eliminating your desires. Separate yourself from your desires. But Jesus turns to this woman who's an outcast, who's whose desires have driven her into isolation and says, I'm going to meet your deepest desire. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it in, in his book, The Way to Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So first two scandals I want you to see is that Jesus pursues sinners and then he promises the satisfaction of your desires, not the elimination of them. Got that? Jesus pursues sinners and he promises satisfaction. But let's move forward and talk about how does Jesus make good on this promise? Uh, just a little bit of background. It's helpful to understand the metaphor Jesus is using here with living water. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the image living water was used a bunch of times and it basically meant the life that came from your covenant relationship with God. But the clearest way, the clearest time it's used is in Jeremiah 2.13. Y'all know this verse? It says, my people have committed two sins. 
they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. By digging cisterns or digging wells that can't hold water. Right, so what, what that text is saying is that the natural disposition of the human heart is that we search for life in things outside of God. We move from thing to person to job, looking for peace and looking for satisfaction. And when we think we found it, what we do is we try to store it up for ourselves. We make an investment in it. And the metaphor the Bible uses is well digging. But it also says that it's a fool's errand. And it says that for two reasons. The first one is it says that the wells you dig for yourself can't hold water. The things you look to for life can't satisfy you. And then it says it's a fool's errand because you're digging, the actual act of digging those wells distracts your heart from the spring of living water, which is God himself, right? Okay, so use that framework as the backdrop for, for what we're gonna talk about next. We're gonna talk about Jesus's redemptive movement towards this woman. What, what does he do to bring her this living water that, that he's offering? So it's interesting that uh, Jesus, uh, this Samaritan woman has met uh, this Jewish rabbi. She's looking for isolation, but now she gets interrupted. And they start talking about uh, permanent satisfaction and somewhere between confusion and faith and just plain old curiosity, she says, sir, give me this water. I want this water. What does Jesus say? Go call your husband. <laughs> Why does he say go? This, this woman who he just promised permanent satisfaction, why would he talk about her sin? Why would he make that move? See, the reason Jesus does is he is after this woman's heart from the get-go. And he needs this woman at the beginning to understand her real neediness and her real thirstiness. See, here's what's interesting. It's uh, uh, up until this point, the, the Samaritan woman's been real chatty, you know? A fun exercise is uh, if you just, you can do it in English, it's probably the same, but if you flip open the Greek version of this and you start counting the words, how many, how many words she's using when she's talking with Jesus, her first thing she says is 17 words. Second one that she says is 42 words. The third one is 13 words. And then Jesus starts talking about husbands. And whoop, three words. Literally in the Greek, it says, I know husband. Y'all ever been here before? You're in the middle of a conversation with someone you love and it's rolling, it's going well. You're enjoying it. And then that one thing you really don't want to talk about comes up. I'm serious. It will take, I mean, it stops you in your tracks and it is like a jab in a wound on your soul that takes your breath away, right? So this woman says, sir, give me this water. And Jesus pivots into the story of her husband's. And then she says, I have no husband. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're right, you've had five. And in fact, the one that you're with now isn't even your husband. 
See, this woman, the reason she'd been driven into isolation is her pursuit for, of, of life and purpose and meaning had bounced her from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next, until finally, at this point, she's just given up hope of commitment and she settled for coexistence. See, the reason Jesus steps to it is because he needs her to understand that this well, Jacob's well, is not the only well she's going to for water. And you know, we are just like her. Whether you're in Christ or you're just checking this out this morning, whether you've been walking with him for 30 years or three days, the one thing we all have in common is our hearts are prone to wander. You know that? We don't even have to look far beyond this text to check out examples of it. There's relationships. We're talking about that right now. We can so easily uh, turn to one another for meaning and purpose. And then as soon as we're done, discard one another, right? But then there's other things in here. There's, um, there's politics. Which mountain? This one or that one? There's religion. There's racism. There's sexism. There's materialism, right? The list of wells that our hearts dig for themselves is endless. And frankly, it's endless because we invent new ones every single day. We look, for, we look to things outside of God for life. And so one of the things I want you to see this morning, the third scandal is that Jesus is more than willing to step to your idolatry if it means your redemption. He's more than willing to go after the wandering affection of your heart if it means your redemption. But the fourth scandal, check out what Jesus does next. Y'all ever met a Jewish rabbi before? I haven't, honestly. Uh, but I could imagine by this point, it's time for the lecture, right? At this point, it's time for get your act cleaned up, knock it off, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And, and we, we probably suspect he would have done it earlier, but Jesus is a master teacher, and so he's just waited to get the woman pinned in a corner by her sin, but now it's time for the lecture, right? You know, that is exactly not what Jesus does. If you read the story, this whole entire time, Jesus has been slowly revealing who he is. And we're going to get to the point where he turns the eyes of this woman's heart towards himself. So it begins by she walks out and she thinks there's just a tired Jew sitting on the wall of the well. And what's he say? He says, I'm the giver of living water. And then she thinks he's a prophet. And he says, you know, in me, the worship of the father is going to fundamentally shift. And then finally, in hopeful confusion, she throws her hands up in there and says, you know what, when Messiah comes, we're gonna figure it all out anyways. What does Jesus say at that point? He lets the cat out of the bag and says, I who am speaking to you am he. He looks her dead in the eyes and said, the, the one you have been hoping for is here, it's me. What's really cool about the text is it, it technically says, uh, if y'all who've taken Greek, it's ego and me. It, it's, uh, he says, I am is speaking to you. Yahweh himself is speaking to you, is what he says. 
God himself is standing in the flesh. Here's my point with all this. Go back to Jeremiah 2.13. It says there's two problems. The first one is we dig wells for ourselves. We look to other things for life and those things can't satisfy us. And so the first thing Jesus does is he draws this woman's attention to the other things she's looking to for life. And then it says the second problem is we've forsaken the spring of living water. You know what Jesus does? Instead of lecturing her about her well digging, he points her to himself. He points her back to the spring of living water. You know why that matters? Your heart was not just made by Jesus and through Jesus. Do you know it was made for Jesus? Those of y'all who are in the adult uh, foundations class this morning, we talked a little bit about our wiring. We are wired up to be dependent on God. It's our design. And so he points us to himself because he's trying to rescue us from our independence and restore us to dependence. But the second reason he does it is, you know, there's only one reconciler, only one intermediary between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. Your sin has separated you from God and it has to be dealt with. But what's amazing is that in the life and person and work of Jesus, he takes your sin and deals with it himself. And then the resurrection that he won, he makes available to you. He points her to himself because she can't deal with her sin herself and you can't deal with your sin yourself. If you try to, you know where it'll lead you? At noon, get watered well by yourself. It will lead you into isolation because your only option, I'm telling you, is to hide it. You know, when Jesus says, uh, the father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. When it says seeking, it, it, it actually means he's making. He's not looking for the ones that already exist. He's trying to make them. And spirit and truth, that's not two things, it's one thing. It, mean, it means he's trying to make people who will worship them with him with their whole entire heart, with their actual life. And so the reason Jesus goes after this woman's heart is because it's the center of her life. It's her affections and her will. And so if Jesus were to point you towards your sin it would, and left you to deal with it on your own, it would only lead you into shame and you'd be stuck. But instead he points you to himself because you can have the freedom to move into new life. Look, before we move off this point, I wanna show you a contrast between the way the world deals with sin and the way Jesus does. You know, the world can only deal with sin in two ways, passively and aggressively. Passively means just ignore it. You're fine. Your sin is great. Give everybody hugs and let them go along their way while they're ruining their life. Or you can be aggressive about it. You can berate people and shame them and drive them into moralism. But both of those ignore the heart. But you know what Jesus does? He offers a third way in his redemption. What I don't want you to miss this morning is that when you come to Jesus, he will step to your sin. I'm telling you, he will deal with 
the places that your heart has wandered. But then you know what he'll do? He'll drive those places of your heart to himself and not leave you alone with your sin. That's amazing. Finally, I want uh, you to see what is the fruit of all this? It sounds like good abstract stuff. Jesus pursuing an outcast. He's winning her heart. He's giving her the resources for redemption. But does it change anything? We talked about that at the front end. The purpose of Jesus coming into creation is to redeem it. What I want you to see, if you turn to verses 28 and 29, is that there's three, at least three types of fruit from salvation. The first one's disruption. The second one is transformation. And the third one is overflowing life. Let's talk about disruption. Verse 28, what's it say? It says, the, the disciples come back and then it says, so the woman left her water jar and went away. There's a bunch of different scholars who debate about why she left her water jar, what the metaphor is here. And I'll just be completely honest with you. I have absolutely no idea why she left her water jar. The text doesn't tell us why she left her water jar, but you know what it does tell us? That she did leave her water jar. And what that represents is, remember this woman, she was out there to get water. And so the water jar is the task she had at hand. But now she's met Jesus. And the fact that she doesn't have her water jar with her is evidence that she's off doing something else. So not only has this woman been interrupted by Jesus, but her plans have now been disrupted by her meeting with Jesus. I'm gonna just be honest with you this morning. If you meet Jesus and he addresses the deep parts of your heart and points you to himself, it will disrupt your life the good job you have, you might quit. Or the bad job you have, you might keep. Or that grudge you've been holding for 10 years might lead to forgiveness. Or that broken relationship that you've had, it might lead to reconciliation. I'm just telling you whatever the plan is, I'm not gonna tell you how it will disrupt it, but it will disrupt your life. It's called redemption. That's why we started at the front end, that redemption means change. It means transformation. So meeting Jesus will leave you disrupted. But why does it leave you disrupted? You know, in the second half of 28 and 29, and it says that the woman went away. Did y'all pick up where it says she went away to? To the town to talk to the people. Why was she at the well at noon getting water? Because she didn't want to talk to anybody. Her shame had driven her into isolation. And now we find her doing the exact opposite thing, careening headlong into relationship with the people of the town. And you know the only thing that's happened? She met Jesus. See, it's important to remember that her, it, it was her shame that had driven her there. It was, it was the broken part of her heart that had driven there. But now that Jesus begins to address it, the exact place of her brokenness, life starts to spring up. 
And that's how it is with you and me. I'm telling you, when Jesus moves into your heart and he starts addressing the broken places of it, life starts to spring up. And the exact place where darkness was begins to be filled with light. That's called resurrection. See, the world will teach you that progress belongs to little improvements, right? And we look for for things that'll help us accomplish the goals we set for ourselves. And then we try to find things that fit in naturally to our life. Like uh, one of my favorite ones lately is the, the, the seven minute workout app. I've determined to stay healthy long enough to try to keep up with my kids. And so I try to find this way that'll fit in my schedule and I don't do it. I do not do it. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus does not care about disrupting your life. He doesn't because he wants to redeem you. And so he's not looking for incremental progress. He's looking to go to the exact place that's broken and speak life into existence. So the reason it disrupts you is because it changes the broken part of your heart. But third fruit of it, what does it ultimately do? Remember Jesus, when he makes the promise, he says, uh, I'll give you this living water and it will well up inside of you to eternal life. Uh, it, growing up, we, we grew up on the Antietam Creek in Maryland. It's right on the Appalachian Trail. And there was this, um, this dam they had built. And what would happen is uh, as the water, as this rain would come down off the Appalachians, it would flow into the creek and it would start to stack up at this dam. Till finally, enough water started to stack up that it would crash over this dam, right? See, Jesus is offering not stagnant water, not life you try to get for yourself, but he's offering living water, real, dynamic, moving life. And as he begins to address the broken, dead parts of your heart and life starts to well up, it starts to stack up behind the dam until eventually it overflows, right? You notice the the two ways it overflows in this woman's life? She uh, leaves her water jar, heads back to the people she's hiding from. And what does she say? Check that out in verse 29. She says, come See a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? When she says everything I ever did, she doesn't literally mean like what she had for breakfast that morning. She means her sin. This woman whose sin had driven her to shame and isolation is now able to talk about it publicly. Right? When Jesus addresses the broken parts of your heart, it's fine. You end up realizing your error, but also sets you free from the shame of it. And you know what would have been sweet for the Samaritans? Is to watch this woman who probably for decades was avoiding everybody because they knew what the story was, is now able to come back and be honest about it publicly. You know how winsome public confession is? I don't mean airing your dirty laundry. I just mean when you watch someone whose life is wrecked in a particular way, not just have it transformed, but be able to talk about it. It begs the question, what in the world happened there? And you know what she says? I met the Christ. She 
She says the only delta is, I met this man at the well, and he, I'm telling you, he is the Christ. And this woman, who everybody in the town would have ignored, starts heading out in droves. I'm not going to make this about evangelism this morning, but I'm just going to tell you this. Evangelism is a barometer of your relationship with Jesus. It's a thermometer that as your life begins to change, it starts to beg the question, what caused the change? And that answer is Jesus. So that, that's not saying that uh, as Jesus starts redeeming, you should go start telling people about it. It's saying that the natural thing to do is when Jesus starts to redeem you is you're gonna tell people about that, right? See, what I'm hoping you see this morning is that Jesus doesn't pursue you the way the world pursues you. And the reason is, is because he actually intends to redeem you. And Jesus goes after your heart. And the reason is, is when your heart changes, you change. And when you change, your life changes. And when your life changes, the world changes. Jesus goes after the heart of sinners because it's the way to redeem his creation. So the question I want to leave you with this morning is if you met Jesus and you found in him everything your heart was looking for, would you be okay if it disrupted your plans? If it changed your life? Let's pray. Father, you saw fit from eternity past to plan our redemption. And Jesus, you set aside the riches and authority of heaven to humiliate yourself by taking on flesh to win our redemption. And so we acknowledge and confess this morning that our redemption is not tied up in our performance or our sin, but it's tied up in you. And Holy Spirit, we worship you as the one who applies the redemption of Jesus to our hearts who speaks that new creative word of the gospel into the dead places of our hearts and brings it to life. And so I pray that for us as a congregation, I pray that for your city, that you would speak your creative word of the gospel into the darkness and that you would bring up, well up new life in the broken hearts in this room and in this city. And Lord, as you do that, we pray that you would make us a people who that life overflows out of, that you would lead us into confession and you would lead us into testimony. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us into redemption. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.